You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final win-win episode of season three. It has been such an incredible season filled with interviews from leaders such as the chief innovation officer at the NBA, Amy Brooks, to Adobe's Tony Van Winkle, to some unbelievable startup innovators ranging from Yotpo's Noah Turok and Michelle Mueller, to Honeypot's B. Dixon, and of course, Alexandra Street from Elevest. If this is your first time listening or the first time listening in a while, I hope you check out these other insightful conversations and keep on tuning in for season four, which kicks off next week. To wrap up this season, I am incredibly grateful and honored to have Lynn Povich as today's guest. There are some women whose work transcends industries, ages, genders, and really stands for making the world a better place in a way that has a tremendous ripple effect. Lynn is one of those women as she is one of the 46 women that successfully sued Newsweek for sexual discrimination in the early 70s, really launching a movement in which women began asking themselves why they weren't at those impactful roles at companies and actually pushing for equality in the workplace as a result of the discrimination that was taking place. If not for the work of Lynn and her peers, our corporate landscape and not just the media corporate landscape would look very, very different today. Throughout the episode, we really focus on what it really took to move the needle in such a meaningful way and what women can do today when they feel like there is discrimination or inequality in their workplaces, as we know that despite the immense progress we have in our society, there's also still so much work to be done. I hope you also check out Lynn's book called Good Girls Revolt, in which she documents hers and others' experience in relation to the Newsweek story. And the book has also been turned into a show on Amazon, which is also really, really great. Lynn Povich is truly an innovation pioneer, a gender pioneer, and I will never forget the opportunity to share parts of her story here on the podcast with everyone. So thank you for anyone who has ever listened and supported this podcast for giving me that opportunity. Please do keep sharing the podcast with your friends and people in your life, and if you can, please give it a rating on the Apple Podcast app. With that, here is our season three finale interview with Lynn Povich. Hi, Lynn. It's my honor to welcome you to the Win-Win Women in Innovation podcast. Thanks so much, Zoya. My pleasure being here. Yes. So I would love to start with the beginning of your career. Your dad was a journalist for the Washington Post for the sports column. So I always wondered, did that deter you or inspire you to go into writing? Well, it deterred me, actually. I avoided (laughs) journalism for most of my academic life. And uh, I just wanted to go to Paris when I graduated from college. And I applied to a lot of places, including Pan Am and TWA and Time and Newsweek and other places. And I was lucky enough to get an interview at Newsweek because of my father in New York, but they Mm -hmm. offered me a job in New York. And my passion was to go to Paris. So they said they had no... uh, They had no vacancies. So I was just going to go. I was going to graduate college, get two suitcases, get on a plane and go. And then at the last minute, 
the Paris bureau chief of Newsweek, cabled my father and said that his secretary had quit suddenly and there was a position for me there after all. So yeah. that's how I got into journalism. I could have worked at P- Pan Am. Yeah, no, no, it's crazy. But, you know, you, you eventually did cave and you said you did end up at uh, at Newsweek. So did you have a passion for writing at the same time? Because I know you also started as a secretary and became a junior writer a little bit later. So were you writing by that point? Well, I, when I was in Paris, I was lucky enough to work for a wonderful reporter named Elizabeth Peer, and she sent me on a lot of assignments. So I, mm-hmm. I began to do reporting. And when I came back to New York a year and a half later, I was a researcher in what was then called the Life and Leisure section, which involved actually a lot of reporting for right. for the writer. And actually, that's my love. I, I prefer reporting to writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was promoted a couple years later in 1969 to a junior writer to write kind of fashion and features and things like that. But I always found reporting more interesting and easier for me than writing. I still do. <laughs> I know you had some challenges with actually interweaving your own story into the book, which I find I find really fascinating. You interviewed so many different people when you were writing your book, but I know that there was a struggle with actually adding on your personal life and your personal story. Where do you think that challenge really stemmed from? Well, you know, when you're a journalist, you don't use your personal I mm-hmm. and you don't put yourself in the story. The point is, is to to find out what's going on, interview a lot of people and try to synthesize and analyze what's going on or the right. truth as best as you can perceive it. So that's that's the tradition I came from. So the idea of actually talking about me and my life mm-hmm. was very difficult. But I was interviewing intensively four or five other women who were part of this movement at Newsweek with me. Mm-hmm. And I, in the end, I realized I couldn't really talk about their lives and not talk about mine. Right. And and you were a central part of the story. So yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. So I think taking it back to kind of the beginning of your time in Newsweek, again, from my understanding, women would typically not get those writing, those editing and the reporting roles. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious, when, when, when a woman was denied these opportunities, was there some sort of quote unquote justification that the hiring managers or editors made for this lack of opportunity? Or was it just the norm and until your revolt, no questions were asked? Well, you know, journalism, like many, many jobs, is a very subjective profession. In other words, I can write a story, someone will say that's not very good. Mm -hmm. And you don't really know if it's not not very good or if there's something else happening. And so since you're constantly being judged on a very subjective level, it's unlike sales where you have figures or other metrics and other kinds of jobs. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's like the arts. It's like a lot of places where it's somebody's opinion. And so in many ways, the women who were denied were told their stories or their reporting or whatever wasn't good enough. And they didn't know. There was no way to sort of figure out what was happening. And some of them, like Nora Ephron and Ellen Goodman, Jane Branquin, when they realized they were not going to get ahead at Newsweek, they weren't actually going to be able to write, they left. Um, very smartly. And the rest of us were still hoping to get ahead because we really loved Newsweek. We loved working there. It was very exciting. And a few people did become reporters. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't anyone writing at that particular time that I was there. 
And I had a very good boss, a man who, for my generation, many of us were mentored by good men. And he mm-hmm. was the one who really advocated for me both to become a reporter and also to be, to be a junior writer as well. Yeah, and I think that role of of the sponsor, you know, outside of mentorship, actually creating that social capital or literally referring somebody, I think that that's something that actually hasn't changed since your time, you know, in the workplace. I feel like today I can say that I got my job because somebody advocated for me and I know I've advocated for other women, for, for a company to take chances on those women. Would you agree with the fact that sponsorship still plays that role and, and what role do you really think it can play in a woman's career? Oh, I think it's very important. I think it's important to have good role models, people who you can look up to just in terms of how they conduct themselves and how their work is in terms of quality. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think it helps to have people take an interest in your career path and in how you're developing and in making you make sure that you're getting a a rounded career path so that you're not just totally... In one, I mean, so many women, for example, were channeled into human resources and, mm-hmm. and not into the parts of the company that were responsible for profits. So it really helps to have a sort of 360 of people who, who you're, you want to shadow and they're interested in you. Yeah. And we'll talk about, you know, the differences between the workplace then and the workplace now. But, you know, what if you don't have those people in your workplace, what would you recommend somebody do? Do you think leaving is is the right way or are there ways that somebody can stay? And I mean, it, it might be a way. My daughter happens to work in, in the entertainment business in Los Angeles and she never had anybody at a company who would take that role. So mm-hmm. she and a group of women at her level got together and asked a high level woman in the business if they would, she would have dinner with them once a month. And so that woman became their mentor, basically. None of them worked for her, but she took an interest in all of them and their careers. That, that's really interesting because I do think that in order to get to that place, you have to have what you know you refer to in your book and what Jane O'Reilly referred to as the click moment, right? So this moment where you come to this consciousness that something isn't right. I don't know if you know this, but for this organization, Women in Innovation, our co-founders actually work together at an innovation consulting agency, and they were finding themselves being the only women in the room and also seeing that the only partners were men. And I would say that that was probably their click moment, and they actually turned to the competition. So they were they went to other agencies and tried to figure out, is the same thing happening, and created this model of co-opetition, which led to this organization uh, being created. So I guess my question in relation to that is, what was your click moment back in your Newsweek days? And then the second part of that is, what do you think is the major catalyst for someone to get that click moment? Is there something we can do to help enable it? Well, ours was pretty obvious because hire, only women were hired as researchers and only men were hired as basically reporters, writers, and editors. So it was very hard to get out of the research category. So it was quite clear what the problem was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we didn't, we didn't, no one was confused about that. The question was how to go about changing it. Right. And you know, some people wanted to do it from within, talking to the editors and trying to convince them. Some of us felt they wouldn't listen to us because we were the lowest employees on, uh, on yeah. the line. And so that's why in the end, in 1970, we decided to file a sex discrimination complaint with the EEOC. Today, I would say to women, and I have said this to, to women I've talked to, that if you think there's something going on in your 
organization that is discriminatory. Let me start there. I think that if it's happening to you, it's probably happening to other women as well. And the most important thing is to document that because what you want to establish is a pattern. Mm -hmm. You know, if all the good assignments are going to men, if all the latest promotions are going to men or the raises or opportunities to travel or whatever it is that helps people get ahead in your organization and not very many women ever get those chances, then you have a pattern of discrimination and then you can decide what to do about it. You can go to HR if you trust HR. One of the problems is in a lot of companies, HR works for the employer, not the employee. And if you doubt that and you don't have a trusted person high up in the organization who might help you, then I think you can go to a lawyer and the lawyer can simply write a letter without naming anybody and tell the employer, are you aware that in the last 12 months, this, this, this has happened Mm -hmm. and all of the people who've benefited have been met. And once you put them on notice, then they might change. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I think we are in some ways at this age of data. And yet I think that a lot of the times people are afraid to turn to the numbers or often oversee the numbers. And they try to turn to the storytelling aspect, which I think telling stories really works if the people on the other side believe you, right? And, and I think that that's a lot of the modern day challenges that we've seen. So I know one woman played a really meaningful role in winning the battle for feminism in the workplace, and that was Eleanor Holmes Norton. And so I guess I'm really curious to understand what role did having her on your team and really leading the charge play, and and why was it important for you to have a woman and a woman of color as the lawyer in this in this suit? Well, we knew we wanted a woman lawyer. The problem was there weren't very many women. We, the first women we went to were like tax and trusts women. And mm. so finally, when we sort of realized it was a civil rights case, we went to the ACLU, and Eleanor was the chief legal director at that time. The fact that she was of color was a huge benefit to us, although we didn't seek anybody in particular. We just wanted a, an experienced woman to, sure. to represent us. But I have to say that um, Newsweek was known as a very progressive magazine, especially compared to Time, and they had been very progressive on the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the editor-in-chief and the, his other editors had to face a very strong woman of color who was defending the women really rattled them uh, more than I think another a white woman might have. Um, I think they were much, much more both impressed and sort of terrified. Mm-hmm about how they should handle this. It's super fascinating, and especially considering the times. And I, I think that a lot of the ways that feminism used to be thought of is we want to progress as many women as possible. It doesn't matter, you know, their their race or other factors about them don't matter. And I think feminism is really seen through a different lens today where different intersectionalities are really prioritized considering race and, and being actively anti-racist. So I think my question for you is, what are some of the other differences that you're seeing between feminism then and now? Well, it was interesting. You know, there was a long period of time when younger women didn't want to be feminists because we were so-called post-feminists. Right. <laughs> um, and it was very interesting to me to see it start to come back again as something that younger women 
wanted to to identify with and mm-hmm. wanted to learn from and also do it in their own way. And by that time, you know, the movement had been been informed by women's sexuality much more than sure. in our day. It, you know, our day really was about mostly job discrimination and somewhat sexual harassment. But sexual harassment really came in the 80s as more and more women talked about it in the workforce. And then, as you said, and then intersectionality. I mean, it's true that people don't realize how much Gloria and many of the second wave feminists always involved women of color, women of different classes, and women of different education. Um, I don't think the second wave women get enough credit for, for the fact that we did have include all of those things and have included everything from child care to reproductive justice to whatever you right. want to call the, all the issues today. They were the bedrock even for the second wave. But it's true that younger women have come up through a different era. The most interesting thing to me when I was talking to the younger women at Newsweek was they had been very successful. They were writers. There was no longer research at Newsweek. And they were very, you know, confident in many ways. And yet they saw that men were still getting ahead, getting better assignments or getting promoted or whatever it was. And they didn't realize that it was the system. They thought it was themselves. They thought they weren't good enough. Right. And when I asked them why they didn't see this as a pattern and understand that it was a systematic discrimination, they said that they had been raised in the era And I did this with my daughter, where you say to every young woman, you can do anything and you can be anything. And they said, when you're raised to believe that, you believe that you are responsible for everything. Correct. So you succeed, it's because you succeeded. And if you failed, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. It's not because there's a system out there that has been constructed to keep you down. And I think that's what young women today are understanding more and more as they get a little bit older, that yes, they can be free about their sexuality and about many other things, but they have to come to terms with the fact that there is still a system that was built to go against them and to keep them down. I completely agree because I always used to think that I was very lucky and I, and I still think I was. Uh, gender was not brought up in my household. Both of my parents worked, so I assumed that a man and a woman working is, is kind of the norm, right? And so I think it creates this issue of, you know, women empowerment as actually maybe not necessarily the most positive thing because by saying that women can do anything, you're almost like you said, voiding the system of their responsibility that it inherently holds. And because I do think a lot of those systems in place still have not been built to account for the differences, you know, in gender. Thinking about the role of journalism as as an industry, now we have this mass communications machine and we've seen the role that it has played. I mean, in the Me Too movement, the role of the media has been so significant, but there's also issues that come out as a result of that. So I'm wondering, what do you think are the greatest changes that you're seeing that are either enabling innovation and helping women flourish in this space, but what are also the greatest barriers that are created as a result? Yeah, well, you know, journalism now has women at all levels that we never were allowed to report on, uh, whether it's about business, finance, uh, the president, not the first lady, Mm -hmm. uh, foreign affairs, um, politics, 
if you look at any major news organization, you will see women throughout and mm-hmm. in senior positions. They are still not running a lot of news organizations, although many more right now than they ever did. So finally, women are also running the Associated Press and the net, some of the network newses, news and a lot of the major metropolitan papers. So we are progressing in terms of where we are in the structure. I think the problem is that there there's still things, not within the journalism ethics, but what has happened to journalism because of social media right. has really changed a lot, especially for women. I belong to an organization called the International Women's Media Foundation, and we just did a survey and actually have started a new organization with several other journalism nonprofits to protect women journalists from online harassment. 70% of women journalists in our survey had been harassed online because wow. you're a journalist. You put your stuff out there. It goes out on the web. It goes on social media or mm-hmm. gets referred to. And what, what happens to these women, how they are threatened, how they are harassed online, much more so than their male colleagues. Their organizations are having trouble trying to protect them and figure out how to protect them when obviously they do have to put their stories up. And so we have many resources to help them, lists of find out who's trolling you, find out how you can protect yourself, many things to help women online. And I think social media has, has benefits, but it also has real problems, especially for women. I think the other piece of that that's interesting is actually how women are being portrayed in the media. And of course, we now have women writing these stories, like you said, whether it's legal, business, finance, all those segments are being covered by women. Yet I do think when you look at the women's leadership discussed and covered in the media, a lot of the times you see that women are not being assessed or reported on the same way that men are. So to give you some of the examples that I've noticed are in the startup space, so the founder of Outdoor Voices or the founder of The Wing or other other startup founders that have been really teared down by the media. Um, I was curious if you've noticed those patterns too and, and whether you think there is something that can be changed about this in the space. Yeah. I, one of the things we always had in mind and we did not succeed in our time was how women were portrayed in the news. And so there was that whole period where people were described as grandmothers and what they wore and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And today, you know, people are a little more conscious of it. Editors are a little more conscious of not being so physically descriptive. But yes, you're right. There are there are still ways that women are portrayed and ways in which women are measured that men are not. For one, one little tiny thing always bothered me. Whenever a woman is in a position of power, they say, she's divorced, she's married, she's a mother of three. They never say that about a man. I actually yeah. am very interested if the CEO of, <laughs> of Squadcast or whatever is divorced or does he have children. Nobody ever tells me anything about no. it. Well, that is such a, it's a, it really informs a lot of what you think about somebody. Absolutely. So, you know, things like, little things like that make me crazy much less the larger things where, you know, women are still bitchy and, you know, aggressive and right. too ambitious and all of those things, particularly women in politics, I think, and business too. Yeah. Yeah. What about like some of the linguistics? I don't know. Have you heard of the term girl boss? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm really curious to hear about your opinion on it, you know, as that term did used to stand, I guess, initially for something positive, and I think society has reevaluated. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I just saw a lot of a lot of journalism, a pro mm-hmm. and con about it. Uh, con saying, you know, this was about, you know, get in there and fight and get ahead and blah, blah, blah. And other people thinking, you know, actually, it was a good term. You know, it gave it gave women a lot of advice to sort of how to manage their careers and get ahead and, and you know, step in, raise your hand, speak up, do all of those things. So, you know, I think for the moment, it's just the bubble of something to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think you can always take good lessons from certain things and reject other parts of it that doesn't make sense to you. I agree. And I also think the other term that I think has been very buzzy initially positively and then negative is um, is Sheryl Sandberg's lean in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's another example of, of those terms. So switching gears a little bit, I know that when you actually ended up leaving Newsweek, you ended up going towards a more technological career, right? So in 1996, you joined msnbc.com as East Coast Managing Editor, overseeing the internet content of NBC News and MSNBC cable programs and personalities. So I know we've touched on gender and the industry a lot throughout this podcast, but I'm curious to see what are you excited about as far as innovation or technological trends in the journalism industry that you think can actually, you know, evolve this industry for the better or something that you're perhaps curious about and don't know that much about? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know a lot, a lot about the, a lot of the new stuff. I have no idea about AI and I have no idea about what's going to happen. Things that we're doing now, like zooming and all of that, you know, remoteness um, and how that's going to affect us. I do think that it has raised really interesting uh, issues for women, though, in terms of, I mean, the younger generation, I will give them a lot of credit for this, has always put a lot more lot more emphasis on work-life balance than we mm-hmm. did. And I think this pandemic and this remote working has emphasized the need for businesses now and government to deal with the role that parents play uh, in many, many industries, and that there are ways to work smarter and better and, and, and actually be more productive than the way they think they had to be. So in many ways, I think that's a good thing. I'm curious to see how that will play out. I hope for the better and not for the worst. And in terms of, I, I'm a little worried about how all this technology is going to affect people, especially you know, not only with this kind of harassment and trolling, but also with the spamming and and the security issues Mm -hmm. uh, around people's personal work and identity. I think we see more and more how dangerous it can be. So I I don't know how we're going to be able to deal with it. I, I, I hope that the emphasis on STEM will produce more and more women in this industry because that culture, the technology company culture has to change. And I think the best way to change it is by having a lot of other kinds of people there, more diverse people, to show them that you can still put out excellent work and not have to do it the same old way. Yeah, and I guess then thinking about that, I know the title of your book is Good Girls Revolt. And so I guess my question to you is, what do you think are the best ways that women or girls can revolt today? (laughs) Well, I think, 
you know, I, I just saw a little YouTube. I don't know why it popped up with a really young girl who wants to be a national football, wants to be in the National Football <laughs> League. And, and, and the boys finally put her on the team because she was fast, so she's the receiver on the boys' team. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, there are going to be so many barriers still to be broken. Um, mm-hmm. And I think women are going to, young girls and women are going to show that gender is not, should not be the issue when you're talking about whatever you're talking about. I just hope the pipelines are full enough to feed what I think is going to be now the hunger. I mean, if you think about where we are now, there's this hunger for diversity, for qualified people. And I just worry that our educational systems are not up to providing the people for those pools. So it's a very large problem for, for our country, but I I have a lot of hope in it. Personal note, I really believe in that too. And I think that if we can't rely on the government to necessarily solve it all at once, then I think just figuring out ways that we can democratize knowledge, whether that's you know media or podcasts like this, I would really hope. Um, I think there's a lot of work for each one of us to be done. So Lynn, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I do have to ask you one last question before I let you go. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry, however you want to interpret that, one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Well, I, I see myself as, a, as a, a recovering journalist who's always interested in sort of what's going on with, with, in the, both the news and also with women and young women and feminism and how that evolves. I find that endlessly fascinating, uh, and I like to learn from it. Um, where our industry is going to be is very interesting. I, I think for a month from now, probably not much. Uh, a year from now, as I, again, as I said, because people have worked differently in the last year and a half, it may have a real effect on how work is done. And because it has raised certain issues that had not been raised before during this pandemic, I think we're going to broaden our coverage, certainly into climate change, into work-life balance, into public health, into areas that perhaps have not been given the emphasis that they should have been. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's a really interesting time to see what's going to happen with our world as a whole, but also to see what are the stories that are going to be told about it in your industry and how will we all live to remember it. So thank you so, so much for everything you've done for women. Thank you so much for everything you've done for journalism. It's really been a pleasure having you on today. Well, thank you so much, Zoya, and good luck with Win. I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.